0: Well, welcome to another episode of Herding Code, our quarterly episode here. This is being recorded on March 367, 2021. <laughs> and today we're talking to Ben Sherman. Ben runs NS Screencast, which is a, a video training site for all things iOS and Apple development. And Ben's going to talk to us today about Swift UI, a relatively new UI framework from Apple for writing Apple platform applications. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Well,
1: cool. thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here.
0: So why don't we start with the sort of high level, you know, what is SwiftUI? What makes it different? Like, what, how is it different than what came before it?
1: So there's a lot of history in the Apple development community. We've had AppKit for 30 years now, which follows a kind of model view controller-based approach. And then when the iPhone came out, they they sort of took lessons learned from that and, and uh, created UIKit. And so when you look at, creating apps for the Mac or apps for the iPhone, if you squint, they're extremely similar. But AppKit has that, you know, 20, 30 years of legacy cruft that they just can never throw away. And so, you know, things are a little bit different. Like, you know, you have UI color versus NS color, UI being the UI kit version for the iOS. And and then you have things like the coordinate system on the Mac is the origins in the lower left corner, which harkens back to the I guess the the way they used to send commands to the printer or something. I don't really know, but on iOS the the origin is is you know top left, and so there's you know minor differences here and there. But ultimately, you've got views that know how to draw themselves. They're object oriented, so you can have a subclass of a view that is a button or a label, and you know the APIs are are pretty strong. But there's there's always you know as our applications get more complex, sometimes. People complain about the patterns not being enough, and people joke about MVC standing for massive view controller instead of model view controller. Because, (laughs) you know, when you give somebody a a pattern and say this is where you put your logic, they tend to put all the code there. And anyway, so last year, wait, time is meaningless nowadays. This is, you know, at least five years ago in, in COVID time, Apple released uh, Swift UI, which is kind of a radical new UI framework for, for writing in air quotes, cross-platform applications. As long as your platform comes from Apple, it will work on tvOS and the Mac and the watch and the iPhone and the iPad. And Swift UI takes just a totally different approach to to writing user interfaces so instead of model view controller instead of your views being object oriented you know in, in the model view controller world you would typically have a view that you would create say I'm going to create like a new UI label and I'm going to attach it as a subview of my main view and then I might read a model in order to tell what the text property of my label is going to be so like on a view to load I could say okay you know model.first name I'm going to assign that to my labels text property but there's nothing in that relationship that's going to continually keep that up to date so I have to respond to events and know to re, sort of you know update my model again. Well, SwiftUI is totally different, where the view that you create in SwiftUI is a struct. It's, it's meant to be thrown away and recreated any time the model changes, and it's bound to the model. So you can say that I have, I have this object that I'm going to observe, and whenever those properties change, I, ne- I know I need to re-render myself. And because it's a struct and everything that we're building is value types, they can be thrown away and recreated really quickly. And so it's a totally different approach. And kind of, you know, from a traditional model view controller mindset, it it's kind of bends your brain to think about how, how you write this. That said, it's pretty amazing because they have, you know, the support in Xcode is you've got your code on the left and a UI preview on the right. And as you type, it shows you what you're building. And so you can kind of flesh things out like really quickly without even hitting, you know, you don't have to compile, it just updates. And so these live previews that you get when writing SwiftUI are just really incredible. And it's, it's one of my favorite features in, in doing this because the, the feedback you get is so rapid.
2: It sounds like they're trying to do uh, more of a functional approach if they're using structs and like immutable data. I mean, is that how it feels to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It fits in really well with like there are there are things that you just don't really like. Most most of the examples are like if I have a user object and I am going to create a screen that shows like a profile view, I can I can create an image view and I can set the image property to the you know some URL that came from my model, and I can set some text labels to this you know the properties from my model as well, and that all works really well. But then you have these other things that don't really seem state driven. Like, I want to present a modal screen on top of this if the user's account is delinquent or whatever. So that modal sheet presentation is usually like some imperative logic that would happen in, you know, in a method. You would just check for the condition and say, oh, I want to present this now. But in a functional world, it's all state-driven. So instead, you'd need a source of truth that says, like, is the sheet presented? And that's like a, a property on your model object that you then mutate. And because you decide to, or when you want to to show that sheet, you have to set that property to true, which, you know, it just, it's like a definitely a different style of thinking. But as you start to build your UI where everything, every interaction in the UI is driven from state, you know, it starts to lean straight toward the functional style of uh, building applications and having your UI sort of just be a function of the state.
2: Interesting, you know, like in my head, I'm imagining a a kind of render pipeline, process pipeline that you're going to send an NS monad through. I wonder when that's going to happen.
0: It's too early uh, in the conversation to go to monads.
2: How uh. hey, long they stay functional? Monads got to follow within about two minutes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't even know how to follow up with that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. This is Rob's podcast yeah, yeah. interview ability right here. Just pray to the interview straight away.
1: So I would say that rather than, than focusing on the like the functional nature of it, it's it's definitely leaning more towards the reactive nature, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. We have frameworks like Reactive JS and the whole reactive e- ecosystem. Reactive Swift is are pretty popular or RX Swift, RXJS, those those platforms, I don't know if you call that a, it's more of a framework, but those are pretty popular and, and Apple just released their combined framework, which is basically the their take on a functional reactive framework for processing streams of events over time. And I've dug in deep to Combine, and I I find it some of the aspects of you know porting my event driven code to Combine has like just changed the way I write software in general. And Combine and SwiftUI kind of fit hand in hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly. It, it's like when you start using one, you'll probably start using the other because they just it it makes things uh, so much more declarative. And so it being a declarative framework that tends to like drive how you write your application from the get go because things aren't so imperative. There's not like one place where you're like okay, here's where I write the code. It's like you're you're instead thinking more about models and state and then building up your views around that.
3: Sometimes when you move from an imperative style to a declarative style, like 90% of the time, it's awesome because it cuts down your code and it like allows you to describe what you want to happen sometimes it can be a little tough to troubleshoot what the heck is going on because things may have side effects or you know what i mean you change one that you're not sure what is driving an update that sort of thing is is that a is that a problem you run into with this
1: yes i think that's probably a universal truth that like the more declarative and the more like magic you get the the harder it is when something breaks down and And trying to figure out what what is going on. What I found to be really helpful, just in general on the combined side of things, you have, it's basically like a functional pipeline where you say like, let's say I have an array of characters from a movie or whatever. I can filter the array, I can uh, map the characters to their last name or whatever, and I can add delays and debounces and stuff like that. And, And then when you think, well, it doesn't really have to be an array, it could be a network response, or it could be user tapping on the screen, right? Any source of event can be transformed in the same way. And so they have some tools that you can just insert in the middle of this pipeline to say, I just want to print out and know when this is happening. Or I want to insert a little side effect block that's just going to sit in the middle and let me set a breakpoint or, Mm -hmm. you know, print out values or whatever. And I'll just delete that when I'm done, but it doesn't affect the chain. It still passes the values downstream. So you have some ability to diagnose like the data flow on the swift ui side i find that to be also true where you've got a lot of things happening and the more complicated a view becomes it, you know just strives you to say okay i want to make this a smaller thing i want i want to design things at really small granular level and i mentioned the, uh, the swift ui preview you know on the right side of the editor you you can create previews for whatever you want it doesn't have to be an entire screen so i can have Say we've got a screen that has like a that avatar that that we want to, you know, round the corners, make it a circle and put a border around it and a shadow or whatever. I could just like create a new Swift UI view, avatar view, and just zero in on just that one component. And then I can see how it looks on large screens, how it looks on small screens, how it looks in dark mode, how it looks if we have accessibility, like low contrast settings turned on or whatever. And I can have all those previews up. At the same time when I'm working on that one component. You can also do interact like user interaction in these previews as well, because it's running a simulator, iOS simulator behind the scenes. So if I'm doing a button component, and I want to be able to tell like, okay, here's the button in like its 12 different states. I've got different background colors, I've got one that has a spinner embedded in the in the button, and I've got like depressed states and highlighted states and and disabled states and all that. And I also want to be able to like animate, you know, maybe when we push the button, maybe we want to. Animate that the shadow kind of gets smaller or whatever to indicate that the button's kind of going into the interface a little bit. It's skeuomorphism. It's coming back. Things like that. I think are it's it's really it's really just not fun to be designing something like that. And it's like that button say is like two screens deep into your UI. And if you run, you have to build and run the application. And like okay, click to the screen. You know, just that turnaround time is just not fun. And the f- faster I can get to. I would just really like to be able to click on it right there inside of Xcode. And SwiftUI previews lets me do that. I can actually run the preview which runs an instance of SwiftUI standalone and then, you know, click through and toggle it and be able to design these things at the small level and then use that in a bigger context. So I think, you know, to to circle back around to your question like when things don't go right uh, or are confusing, I I tried to like zero in on little components and try to make their, you know, the data flow more obvious and, and to design the UI in a, in a way that I can start small and just grow out from there.
0: So when I've, when I've done a little bit, I've done a little bit of Swift UI and I definitely have hit situations where that preview thing sort of breaks and you can't really tell why and, I'm, I've never been sure if it's just me doing something stupid, or the, you know, I'm hitting some like you know, nope. I'm trying to do something in my view that is just not supported. Or is that a yeah, is that a common it,
1: problem? or Is that something that it is? It's a common problem, but I've been able to get around it. Again, just going back to the make things simpler. You can comment out stuff, and and until it renders, and all of a sudden it'll pop in. And you'll be like, okay, it's something with between this part and this part. There is a little like a little diagnostics button that'll say like the preview agent crashed and you can click diagnostics and it literally never tells me anything helpful. But if you go to on a Mac in your home folder, library logs, diagnostic reports, that's where all your crash logs show up and Xcode will have a crash log in there. And so I just keep that window open. And so when this preview stops loading, it's because they tried to run the app and I did something I'm not supposed to. And anyway, so usually I can go in there and it literally the crash log shows me the line number of the problem. So Xcode has all this data at its fingertips. It's just not quite it's not quite helpful enough to tell you exactly where the line is in the editor you're using. But I think that will improve over time. What
3: well, you mentioned components I- so different. There's different. Like it's useful to build with components and stuff. Is there actually like a an ecosystem? Do people sell components? Is there like a packaging and distribution thing for components? So we have Swift Package
1: Manager, which is just starting to become useful. Before that, we had a couple of you know community driven efforts to bring in dependencies. Nothing like what I remember when I used to be a .NET developer, where people would sell like packaged products and they come with support and stuff like that. There's there's not a lot of that happening in the Swift community, I can think of one success story, and I've met the founder, and he's a he's a good he's a good guy, and he's built a huge company off of PDF mm. controls and rendering and stuff like that. So, if you've used an app that that embeds like PDF uh, editing or scanning or whatever, chances are you probably use his component, and that's a PS PDF Kit. But outside of that, I'm not really aware of like a healthy ecosystem for like selling those types of components. Open but source.
0: I, Yeah, open source,
1: we can definitely see, you know, bringing in a Swift package and being able to access all of its functionality, whether it's it's like talking to services or if it's UI based. I I do think that in the iOS community in general, and I I suppose this is probably more of a, a community where you deploy software onto people's devices and they may never update them again. You're generally a little bit more conservative over throwing other people's code into your project and there have been some in the early days especially there there were some pretty bad horror stories about frameworks that did too much or had bad code in them and stuff like that and they might yeah, cause your app to crash and it's you know it's not your fault but it's your problem type of thing and And so I think that there are pockets in the community that are just like no dependencies ever, which that extreme, I don't agree with, but, but I do think that you should take dependencies like that with a healthy dose of skepticism and you should be able to read the code if possible and make sure that you're comfortable putting it in your project because you are going to deploy it onto, you know, hopefully lots of devices and, and you have no control at that point. You can't force them to update. Whereas, you know, I also do web development. So if you Make a mistake there, you can always push again, right?
3: (laughs) You mentioned like the Reactive Swift and there have been things out there for a while. So Combine is new and from Apple. Is that the main difference is that it's now like in the box and official?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I just recently launched a course on Combine and it's at combineswift.com. And in, in the course, it was basically like, why now? like these open source has shown that this is a not only a popular choice for iOS developers but across many platforms the rx star ecosystem is huge and they generally follow the the conventions so if you're familiar with one on javascript for instance you would probably be quite familiar with it on swift the the difference is is that You know when for instance i i'm a consultant so i'll go work on a project for six months or something and then i'll help them hire a team or or whatever and at some point i'm going to be giving this code to somebody else and i always felt like that decision that sort of like the calculus of like is it responsible for me to choose like insert fringe framework name here i want to make sure that i enable my clients to be successful and while i personally think that those frameworks were interesting I never came across a situation where a client was asking for that. And and especially if you're trying to hire from the broadest pool of developers unless you're willing to train them on a topic. I think this would probably be different if it was like my team, my company, you know, I would decide on what tools to use and train the people who were going to to work on it, but um, so I think that there's something to be said about kind of sticking with the middle of the road, you know. I you know, my my web development platform of choice is Rails and in Rails, there are strong opinions and there are strong conventions. And I get on a new, you know, I'm on a project right now and I've, it's very complicated, but I can look at their Rails app on the back end and I pretty much know how to read it and I know where things are and I know how to, you know, so there's something to be said about uh, sticking with those kind of norms. But now I think it's different because Apple is committed to supporting it, right? They're, they're going to be making sure that, you know it doesn't break with a future version or they don't bring out some new technology that's just completely incompatible with that style of development. And so I think that's where the difference is. There are some you know probably some growing pains that they have to go through making the the framework as robust as RX Swift for instance, but the majority of the pieces are there and and you can build the ones that aren't. Hmm.
3: Yeah, that's something I working with the .NET team at Microsoft, we struggle with this all the time, right? It's like there can be a popular open source thing out there for a while. And then people, enterprises, you know, want an official thing in the box. And it's always that challenge of like, what do you ship in the box? And what do you not, you know, rely on? Yeah, and I worked for
1: enterprise consulting in the .NET space many moons ago. And Mm -hmm. they had a blanket yes to anything that Microsoft gave us. And a blanket no to anything that that was outside that. And Rob, I don't know if you you probably don't remember this, but this was like eons ago. And I wanted to use Subsonic on this project. And they, they said no.
2: What is Subsonic again? <laughs> I don't remember. You know, I still get yeah. pull requests. For, I still get pull requests. Yeah, would you
3: approve mine, please?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. It makes but sense. It runs on my machine. John, you've got to learn to write unit tests. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fad
1: yeah it's definitely like i i take caution in saying like it's good because it comes from apple because it's not necessarily true you know i like apple's frameworks i like the platform a lot but when when something does come from the company that you mm-hmm. you know your product is based on there's a sense of uh, certainty and it's going to be more mainstream for
2: you know, other developers as well it's, so, it's not I, just a fringe thing i have yeah. a question i have a question on this i I think you and I talked about this when you were launching your your service the CombineSwift.com, and and you were asking about platforms and whatnot and you ended up writing your own right yes <laughs> yeah no so I mean'm I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here on the site i com looking at it and this is a you wrote this you wrote this with rails yes I, I find that just fascinating like we're having this discussion about You know platforms and what do i use whatever you went with what you knew and you wrote what you knew and for me i sell books i sell videos right and like trying to figure out how to trying to figure out the mechanism to do that is such a challenge because there's so many i wouldn't necessarily recommend it (laughs) but it's It's, beautiful i think it's because thank
1: you the reason why i say that is that i i am incredibly picky And I find one thing, you know, like I looked at Teachable, for instance, and I know some people launch stuff on Teachable and I don't even, I couldn't even pinpoint right now what it was that was like, nah, but it was just one of those things I'm like, I, I guess it's the curse of like, I know how to write this stuff and it's also fun, at least in the moment to be writing it now that I'm paying for it and supporting it and I'm having to deal with some Stupid Webpacker issue right now, which so like it's. Really, I'm like, why did I choose? Trade to be, off, yeah, it's definitely a trade off.
2: Well, I do find it interesting that you know when we're talking about these things about you know what you're willing to accept and not. I mean, you just leaned into Rails and you you built the thing you wanted, and I fully agree with you. I started on Kajabi what was it a year ago, trying to do this thing, and yeah, it took me about three months to realize it didn't do what I wanted to do. Same with Podia, same with like so mm. many other things. And so I ended up just writing my own using Firebase and GitHub Pages for mine. And it works great in Vue, I should say. there I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's it's troublesome, but at the same time, it's rewarding when you know the platform, you know how to solve a problem because you can get in there and solve it. So I don't want to take us too far on a tangent, but you brought up Rails. And I think, like you said, you know where the code is. You know where the thing is. That is huge a year down the line when you're like, why didn't this thing work? Well, I'm gonna go right to this spot because I know that's where it is. Yeah.
0: So when Swift UI first came out, it was pretty bare bones, pretty rough as I recall. And then mm-hmm. the last the last big upgrade, they added a bunch of stuff. Um, like where is it in terms of maturity? Like what kind of apps would you build with it? What kind of apps would you not build with it? You know, where is it sort of in its life cycle?
1: So I would say I'm both a extreme optimist and also somewhat pessimistic if that makes sense at all. Like the 80% you it is unbelievable how fast you can get to the 80%. Like it's it's so enticing when you see how fast it can be to develop things as small components. And when you think about like there's there's some ceremony and stuff like that that happens like when you when you're building like a to-do list app on iOS. And and all of those things make sense when you're building like a big project and you need to you need to modularize your code and you need to like isolate things so you've got, you know, a, a controller and a view and th- that view has subclasses for subviews and things like that. But sometimes those things are just there because you need a view to go in that spot. It's not like you don't necessarily need to create like how do, how do I say this sometimes there's just too much ceremony for the level of application you're building if that makes sense i i like that kind of uh, fine grain structure and you know attention to detail and the ability to split things off into components when my application is complex enough for that but if i'm building a to do app for for instance my screencasts that i do like all the time i kind of get frustrated with how mundane like creating a a collection view for instance is like there's there's just a lot of steps to it, and I find that like in Swift UI, I can get, I can get there in like 10 minutes, like full to do full to-do app. I probably shouldn't have said that because now Rob's going to challenge me to do it, but I, I just feel like there's like the easy stuff is so unbelievably easy. That said, the the remaining 20 percent is sometimes you hit a brick wall. And I'm working with two apps right now that I, one is just a personal project of mine. I've been struggling with tinnitus for like a little over a year now. And I decided to build an app that would help with this particular type of tinnitus therapy. And so it deals with audio and it's like... It's super fun. And I decided to do this like a bouncy little waveform animation to sort of give you some visual feedback as you're changing the frequency and the volume of your of your tinnitus frequency. And it looks pretty amazing and I'm really happy with it, but it crashes in a way that I can't reproduce. And this is the only thing preventing me from shipping it. And so mm-hmm. I just kind of put it on the back burner for now because I'm like, I got to ask, I think I've got to ask Apple about that one because I'm at a loss and I don't want to ship something that I know crashes. So... So anyway, and then I'm working on another app with a designer friend of mine. I know, I know the podcast people can't see it, but it's basically there's this book that he wrote full of these puzzles and the, the puzzles are called the Rebus puzzles. And so they have like these icons and your job is to figure out what it is. Uh, Spider-Man. So, yeah. So I'm holding up this book that has a, a spider and a man icon. And then the other one is a bacon and eggs on the top and a golf club on the bottom. So that's breakfast club. So this is all movies, right? And so the idea is for it to be kind of like a, a puzzle app that responds to text and and, uh, and voice and stuff like that. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, but I'm starting to hit those edges where like those quick wins are gone. And now I'm like, I don't know how to hide the navigation bar when I scroll up because – and this is like the stupidest thing to get hung up on, Right. But it's because I don't have the hook that I need, and there there are things like that which I get kind of frustrated with. So I wouldn't like say 100 Swift UI all day, every day. But I would say that whatever project I go with from this point onward, a significant portion of it would probably be in Swift UI.
2: So I have a question, and given given that all of y'all have done this right. <laughs> It's, i swear to god i'm not trolling trolling anyone here but in in you describing i think what you said was i can build a, a to do app and you know and you said rob's going to make me do it no it actually made me think of asp.net <laughs> 2.0 where you could drag and drop your data sources and line stuff up and bang stuff out so fast mm-hmm. and then I, you know my my brain kind of locked onto that but and then all of the things that you're describing now, but the fringe cases, I can't quite get the property hook. I can't quite. Yeah, it's not a new problem.
1: problem at all.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because like sometimes I think about this and, and, you know, of course, maybe it's just me being an old guy. I don't know. Dude, what we had with web forms was insane productivity. <laughs> it was insanity. Of course, right. There's a bunch of problems with it, technically speaking, and testing and all that stuff. But I mean, sometimes I think about this like, You want a sortable, draggable, droppable grid that has search built in with a, you know, an event hook that you can go and and do stuff. I I think about that and I just keep thinking like sometimes all this stuff just seems so cyclic. So anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up to you is, and this is a legitimate question, I swear I'm not trolling you, does it ever feel like you're doing this again? Yes. All the things you did back then and now you're doing... It, but yes, you're doing
1: but I have the context and the hindsight to like recognize some key differences, I think. Because I was there during that time and I was one of the people who said like, oh, this designer thing isn't going to work because five minutes after the demo was over, I'm going to need to like, I, I'm going to need to like transform this data and I just mm-hmm. I just selected that field from a dropdown in a GUI somewhere and now I'm lost, right? Now I need to like hook in. And actually on the Mac... This is a good sort of similar point. On the Mac, in AppKit, you have bindings. And so there's, you can, with a GUI tool, you can say like, oh, I've got this uh, array of people and I want to take the first name and I want to bind it to this thing. And this is how like grids and stuff like that are built on on a Mac app. And so like there's a row controller and it's got a model and whatever. That's amazing. As long as you type all of the things correctly, there's no code Mm -hmm. completion. It's in some property pain GUI somewhere in a drop down and good luck getting a source control diff that makes any sense. these are all the problems that like I think that ASP.net also had, you know, when we're trying to do these things. What I like about the Swift UI part of this is that I think that the the good architecture and the ability to hook in where you need to is almost there like for the majority of stuff it is there and i think that the the cases where i'm getting hung up on are are things that i'm certain i can get around but i i like the fact that it's not like there's a design time experience and a code experience and i and like in in when i was doing asp.net i was like oh i'm a i'm a code behind type of person like i don't need that designer it's not like that it's like there's one representation and it is the code and the ui is is you know automatically updated actually the ui the preview you can right click on it and like manipulate stuff. And it actually writes the code for you also.
2: Okay. Honest is question. Kind when's, crazy. When's the last time you had to edit XML? I don't know. Five years ago. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, I do want to make it clear. I'm, I, am i am not, I, I am not trying to liken Xcode and Swift UI and all that to, you know, technology that's 10 plus years old. I'm just, <laughs> to me, it's like the idea, the idea of the designer, the idea of, we can abstract this away now to a visual interface. I think is fascinating. In fact, I feel like it's coming. Like, I feel like if someone was to come out with a rails UI or something like that, like it would make perfect sense because it's all just so known. Like we can now put a UI or UI on top of it and just drag and drop stuff. You know what I mean? Cause well, I, I mean, know. this isn't drag and drop, right? It's, it's declarative UI code, yeah, I, right? I'm right. I'm sorry. I'm not really I'm not trying to conflate the two. I know I am, but I'm not trying to conflate the two. I'm just saying like the ease of getting from zero to whatever, you know, zero to a hundred is so easy. Yeah, I think the, the, cases, right? the
1: differences are what happens when you do go off the rails and how painful is that?
3: That's the whole thing. I've been thinking this the whole time. It's like that transfer, like getting started, getting something going quickly, hitting 90% of the use cases is great, as long as when you get to that, that cutover where you've got to get down, you need the hooks, you need access to, you know, and you need to be able to find where is this thing set up or where is it, you know, where do I hook in and how quick can I fix this? And can I put a breakpoint on it? Yeah. Yeah. One it's thing it's I was to
1: bring up the, about the like, Kevin, back to your question about like, would I use this in a real app or how big of an app or whatever? And I mentioned that I would use Swift UI for a, a major part of it if I could. The, Apple's done a pretty good job of making the UI kit and Swift UI be able to include each other. So in a UI kit based app, I have view controllers and views. I can create a, what they call a UI hosting view and put a Swift UI inside of that and it renders. Mm-hmm. So I can have just like my settings screen or just I could just have that avatar view that I designed or my custom button that could just be my only swift ui part of the entire app if I wanted. And then the the reverse is also true. If I've got something that I wrote in UI kit, either a ui view or a ui view controller, including all of Apple's stuff, I can I can create a ui view wrapper that includes that. And then there there's some necessary hooks that you have to create to make sure it stays up to date because in a in a world where all of your views are value types they get thrown away and recreated because it's cheap, you know, it's it's not free but it's super cheap to do so whereas objects on the heap are you don't want to throw those away and re-render every time a user is typing a character. And so you those stick around and then there's an update method that you can use to kind of synchronize that view with your with your model. And so I use that a lot so that I can kind of mix the two. And because of that, my Swift UI preview functionality in Xcode works actually for almost all the code that I work I write now because I can create that little wrapper just for my preview and get that live editing experience on stuff that isn't hasn't nothing to do with Swift UI. Uh, it's a little bit slower because it has to create that stuff behind the scenes. But this kind of my main approach to working on applications these days. My my current client that I'm working on doing a fresh build takes like 4 or 5 minutes. So if I'm like, oh, the this needs 4 pixels of padding instead of 6. Like that is just a nightmare and I don't want to do I don't want to build and run and have to like make those kind of tweaks and have that feedback cycle be so long. And so, you know, breaking the app out into smaller components and being able to use these previews right in Xcode, I think is just hugely powerful.
0: So does that work both ways that like you have an existing UI kit based application, you can start building some stuff, some parts of it in Swift UI and integrate it yep. and vice versa. You can, you know, you have a Swift UI application, you can integrate uh UI kit components.
1: Yep. Cool. There's a, there's a chocolate and peanut butter joke in here somewhere.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so what's the overall like workflow. Okay. You, you have an idea for a new app you want to build. What's your general, like, it sounds like there's a lot of like iterating on the design side, but how do you actually like, you know what I mean? How would you, how would you go from, I've got an idea to I'm shipping an app?
1: So I really like working with the designer. If a designer can give me like a Figma or mocks of an app, I feel like I'm most productive in that environment. I feel like as a, as far as developers go, I think I have a pretty good eye for design, but I wouldn't call myself a designer. So I can like... If, like I, w- w- the way I work, I feel like designers don't need to tell me about things like, you know, color choices and font weight choices and things like that and proper spacing and consistency and all that stuff like th- that. I recognize it and I do it as a matter of practice, whatever. But sometimes having somebody think about the flow and the bigger picture and the, you know, and being more creative with the design is something that I, I really value. So so that's my preferred approach is when I have some, some Figma mocks. Uh, they don't have to be pixel perfect, but, you know you know, rough or near, you know, near final designs are are really nice to have for things that I'm creating on my own, like this, this tinnitus app, it's got some nice colors and it's got that nice animation. But when you've like squint, it's like two screens and it's got, you know, it's uses some basic controls. So it's got some, some, some nice looking lipstick on it, but it's ultimately just some stock controls. And so I think, you know, it's definitely something that like i I know enough about design to be frustrated with what I can produce myself if that makes sense, mhm, yeah, um, but yeah, I just try to iterate, you know I started this this tinnitus therapy app i I'm actually you know it's it's basically. An implementation of a white paper that I skimmed, you know, skimmed down to the conclusion section. Anyway, about like what frequencies and it's basically a pattern that it plays based on your tinnitus frequency. And and so I came up with this 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 idea of like, okay, it would be really cool for me to to play this on my phone. I've seen tools like this on the web as well, but I'm never, I you know, I want to be able to like put in AirPods or whatever and and just do this like when it happens, not when I'm like in front of the computer. Mm-hmm. And so, and so anyway, that's kind of where the idea came from. And I just kind of started iterating and I wanted to also get some practice with Swift UI. So I decided just, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this in hundred percent Swift UI, which I think is fine if for me, because I'm using it also as a learning tool. And I also like to teach this stuff. So I want to make sure that I have, you know, have some apps that I've created and stuff like that mm-hmm. for somebody else who's like, who just wants to ship an app. I I think the decision of like, there's no like badge of honor to be like, oh, it's a hundred percent Swift UI. You know what I mean? It's like, I think that people aren't going to be able to see the source code. And as long as you ship it and you're happy with it, like it doesn't really matter what it's written in, you know?
3: Yeah. There are platform restrictions, right? Like combine is only there's OS level requirements, or I guess that's just developer level.
1: I, yeah. Runtime requirements for Combine. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure why, but but yeah. So iOS 13 for both SwiftUI and for for Combine, which typically we have a pretty healthy update cycle in the iOS community, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in current version minus one is, is usually pretty standard. The project I'm on now is unfortunately like two versions behind current. So maybe in the fall we can bump up and in that case, then we'll be able to start using SwiftUI and combine and stuff like that. But yeah, in the fall is when iOS fifteen will be will be announced.
3: I, I what I was wondering about earlier when I was asking about the kind of workflow is, I guess, how painful is it to refactor and and like on the code side of it? How you know what I mean? How how easy is it to just kind of quickly refactor your code as you're going there? Like. Where you don't have to think too much because if you make a mistake, it's not going to be too bad to rip it out and change it around and that kind of thing.
0: I would
1: say that it's in general, it's, you know, Swift is a statically typed language. So you, you have the ability to do refactoring and get compile errors if you're wrong and stuff like that. Xcode's refactoring tools are pretty hilariously bad. Every year I think, oh, maybe maybe I can actually rename a class and have it properly rename the file as well and rename all usage, usages and it usually works sometimes it doesn't it's just i don't know like i i i was a big fan of resharper when i was using visual studio and none of that stuff i mean it's just like and that was over a decade ago mm-hmm. and so xcode just doesn't have that same like it's just not as important to them unfortunately there is a jet brains ide for swift called app code and it's great, but it's kind of like they're always chasing a moving target because it's not first mm. party. It It's not a plug-in. It's a separate IDE entirely. So, for instance, when Swift UI came out, they had to, like, scramble to get their stuff, like, to have some support for Swift UI, because otherwise you're just editing Swift in app code and looking at it in Xcode, which – and if you're yeah. going to have to run both – I don't know. So I've just never really made that made that switch. I do know people who who use it full time because of the refactoring support. But that said, I think that, you know, as long as the compiler can can catch all these errors, I'm pretty confident like ripping things out, and moving them around and stuff like that. As, especially in Swift UI, it's actually a lot easier in Swift UI.
3: One other related thing is like testing. Do you do are you able to do like unit unit or integration level testing or like can you test ui component stuff um, i haven't actually entered the world of trying to test
1: swift ui views yet i just i basically treat that as like i can see it working mm. and i can create previews for all the different states so if there's like a a state that is that I'm unlikely to ever see happen in the wild, like the missile launched screen or whatever, Um, you know, I can simulate it in the preview and see it. So for that stuff, I don't really necessarily see the value in it, but for testing the models and, you know, network service related things. Yeah. There's support in, in Xcode for, for writing and running tests, the testing kind of the community isn't quite as behind it as I would like most people really don't write tests. And when you do find a project that has tests, they're, they're pretty paltry. So mm. it's something that I think that definitely could be improved. And I think that tooling certainly helps ease that barrier, but it also requires some, you know, discipline in how you design your software. Right. Because if you've, you know, if you start tying things together with like singletons everywhere, then it becomes pretty difficult to isolate things out to test, if not impossible. And, and Apple has a long way to go with that as well. You know, I worked on a, uh, an app that was integrated with the photos app on the Mac for a couple of years and writing tests for that environment was really difficult. And we basically had to mirror all of Apple's types with our own wrappers, you know, it was probably, you know, six or 10 different like core types that we, we had to, wrap and use our own wrappers so that we could stub them out during testing because it was like this central part of the app that we couldn't touch in a test because it dealt with a photo library and you don't have access to that in the test. And nor would you really want to. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I would say like, you know, I wish that the tools were more accessible and I wish the community was probably more, you know, aligned to testing, but but there is support for it. And I do some myself, probably not enough. <laughs>
0: So with a you know with a new way of building applications, there there may be like f- things that the the community has to figure out about like what's the right way to structure a large scale Swift UI application, right? Like I you know, I learned some stuff by going through the the Apple, you know, like intro course, but like you could see where like that's a very rudimentary way of structuring an application. And if you want to build something big that's got lots and lots of screens, like what's a what's an effective way to to organize that and separate your models. I mean, has the, has the community sort of figured that stuff out yet or is Apple giving guidance around that?
1: I would say Apple's guidance has been really fantastic on the entry level stuff. Their tutorials are really interactive and rich and you you see during the tutorial, you see the code you're supposed to write and you see what that's doing live on the right-hand side. And so as you scroll through, it's kind of dynamically building up the application. It's a really, really ni- neat tech for interactive learning on the web. But that said, they kind of stop there. And like, you know, where do, where do you go from there? I think in general, like standard architecture still applies up to the point where you get to those models and the, the view layer that needs to be recreated. So like who owns the objects that make the network calls, for instance. There are, there are some conventions that we can follow. Apple has these property wrappers, which I guess would be kind of akin to attributes for properties in .NET, where you can decorate properties with like functionality, and so there's because like your view is just a struct, right, and is meant to be thrown away and recreated. Anything you put inside that struct will also be thrown away and recreated. So they have some property wrappers which basically say like Swift UI is going to take ownership of this thing and keep it around so that so that you can still uh, feel free to re-render the views at any time, and so that's kind of the limit on what Apple is providing. But from there, I think that, you know, once you have your, your model objects, those are classes and they live for as long as you need them to live. And and then, you know, there's no MVC to like guide you down a path, but you can you can kind of create any architecture that you want, I guess. The, there is one architecture that's kind of actually I take that back. There's there's two in the iOS community that that people know of. One of them is called Viper. And maybe to avoid upsetting anyone, I'll reserve like my, my judgment, but it does (laughs) tend to remind me of kind of like the, you know, the Java naming ecosystem, kind of like there's a, there's a presenter factory implementation type. That's kind of what it reminds me of. And so it's just not my style. I've never personally worked in that environment, but I, I, I don't think I would l- enjoy it. And there's another one that's more geared towards Swift and Swift UI. It's called the, the Composable Architecture. And there's there's a couple of guys who run a, a screw like a screencast video training site called Pointfree.co, and they talk high level, They they go deep on the functional aspect of Swift and Swift UI and Combine for that matter. Their their stuff is very advanced and they came up with something called the composable architecture and it takes lessons from redux and there it's it's not for the faint of heart because you look at it and you'd be like oh my god what's going on but if you do know what's going on you can express things in a really concise way and it's guaranteed by the compiler to to work the way it should but i would say with with environments like that as you know i've done a fair amount of react as well when you get something wrong it's very difficult to trace down what's happening so i don't have experience shipping apps with this architecture but it does interest me you know just as a at least as an exercise for learning if not if not more but there are some efforts out there to like come up with architectures that people can use for their apps for for the most part i just create objects with or classes with those responsibilities when i need them and i don't try to like fit into a cookie cutter pattern if that makes sense
0: so when you're defining an object model for use in a Swift UI app, like how much does Swift UI sort of dictate the shape of your object model or sort of perturb the design? Like are you designing like a pure domain model and then, you know, plugging it into, you know, Swift UI or are you building more of a like MVVM-ish kind of thing which is like an object model that, you know, is designed to kind of in- interact with the UI? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, MVVM is probably the closest corollary to to what I end up writing. You know, the the models that I keep referring to are subclasses of observable object in Swift, and that means that anytime I mark a net property in those models as published, it will fire fire an event basically that uh, stuff is changing and Swift UI will coalesce all those changes into a in in, in like in the same run loop for instance. So if you change like three three published properties like it just kind of says okay and then on the next run loop it will it will cause any dependent views to re-render. And so so it doesn't do any like tree diffing or anything like that. So that influences like the shape of my view models, but outside of that no. It I can write whatever I want. On my on the puzzle app I was talking about it, it deals with speech recognizers so that I can like tap the microphone icon and I can say the answer to the puzzle and it'll convert that to text. And I put the text on the screen and then we check the answer to see if it's correct. And if so, we flip the card over. And my naive implementation of that was each of my puzzle screens, which had a card on it, had a puzzle view model. And that puzzle view model had a speech recognizer on it. And so when I loaded up a pack of 50 cards, suddenly I had 50 of these speech recognizers, which come from Apple, being initialized At the same time, because Uh. I like, and so it was something that was kind of surprising to me because I was sort of used to like the lazy loading nature of, of traditional UI kit, like where things get created when they are, when they are called, whereas this is all state-based and I was inadvertently creating it all up front. So I had to kind of design myself around that, but, but I would say in general, like aside from the, the view model shape of things and using that published attribute or published property wrapper, I still have the freedom to kind of create the code i want to write
0: have you have you gotten to the point in application yet where like the you know the the fact that you're creating and destroying v- views constantly you know over and over again like is there a point where that s- starts to bog down the application is there like a point of complexity where that becomes an issue or is it have they really got that kind of tuned
1: i honestly i'm surprised how Like I don't have to care about that. The only time I really have to care about it is if I'm mutating state in the view render itself, which would be a problem in any framework, right? Because then it would just cause like an endless render and Xcode will detect this and it'll give you a, well, it's a runtime warning. Like, Hey, you probably shouldn't be doing this. I have a couple of cases where I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm only going to do it just this once. And then you know what I mean? Like it renders once and that gives me the data I need. And then that's enough for me to say, Oh, okay. Like I actually, the context of this is I've got the, I've got a card that I want to flip over. Right. And mm-hmm. in reality, it's a view that I'm doing a, tr- a 3d transform on. Right. And so I've got a front and I've got a back. And, and so what I do is when the front card rotates to like where you can only see the card edge, I swap them nice. where the other one is there. And then it. F- then and so i actually have to render the back backwards so that when i flip it it looks right and so swift ui has this thing called animatable modifiers where you can basically take control of the animation and they give you uh, a floating point value of 0 to 1 to tell you like okay here's the progress of the of the animation and it's up to you to return a transform to like you know squish it or scale it or whatever And what's cool about that is like you're agnostic to the animation curve, the timing of the animation. It could be ease in, ease out or whatever. It could be a spring-based animation. Uh, So that number may not linearly progress from zero to one, but you don't really care. And so in in that animatable modifier, I check to see if that angle is 90 degrees. And if it is 90 degrees, then I set some state that tells my UI to flip the display of those cards. And so I get a warning right there because I'm, they're literally animating. I'm in the middle of an animation, and I change state during the animation. But because I only do it once, I don't know. I think it's fine. Maybe there's a better way to do that. But uh, but this is the type of thing that like it. It's surprising to me like how little I have to worry about them throwing away pieces of the view tree and recreating recreating them. It's it's definitely different than the like from what I understand to be like the React model where you where it does like DOM diffing and stuff like that. Uh, And there's a lot of, a lot of tech that makes that fast, but Apple has chosen a a different approach and it's, it's all purely based on state. And I don't know, they've, they've been able to, to make it pretty fast. So,
3: so you talked about like the cases where you want to directly control the animation or stuff. Is there kind of a good system for just kind of transitions, you know, kind of like trans yeah. Transitions.
1: Yeah, so there's implicit animations and explicit animations. Mm-hmm. So I can say, here's a rectangle on screen. It's got a color, and the color comes from my model, my view model. And I can just say dot animated. And then when I change the change any attribute of the view tree that came before that modifier, so the the frame, the color, the alignment, or whatever, the, the borders, any of that stuff, turns out if any of it is animatable it'll animate whenever any of that stuff changes which is great if you just want a free animation but it Mm -hmm. sucks if you want to animate the frame but not the color so if you want to do that you have to either get clever with the position of where you add the animated modifier because order matters if you add it before the color but after the frame then the frame will modify it be animated but the Color won't and so the other the other approach is to do an explicit animation and and those explicit animations you can be more precise about what you want to animate and and how, but the the simple stuff about just moving stuff around is really really easy
3: okay how How much do you have to care about lifetime? I'm thinking of things like most app models have a way of like putting your app to sleep or something for a low power mode or that sort of thing. Do you just basically like set? set your properties and your and like it takes care of it for you behind the scenes
1: or. Yeah. So from the beginning, actually iOS has been really, really aggressive about killing apps that, that are or like that tie up the mm-hmm. CPU for instance, or take too long to boot or whatever. When you go into the background, you'd be surprised how many of your apps are actually being suspended and evicted from, from the running state. And mm-hmm. until you come back in and you know, there's, there's probably some stuff where it's, taking the memory and putting it to the to the flash storage on the device. And then when you come back, it, it'll restore it. And your app is still running in the same place it was before. For the most part, you don't really have to think about that stuff. If you do need to do like background stuff, like if you're playing audio, for instance, especially if you are like, transforming audio samples or whatever then you need to be running like all the time and so there are special background modes you have to elect into and apple has to approve those so they'll you know if you're an audio processing app they'll say yes and if you're you know if you're i don't know a game that has nothing to do with audio then it would be suspicious right so one of the you know one of the
0: compelling things about swift ui is that it's designed to be truly cross platform you know you, you can run it on you can write apps that work on the mac on the phone on the watch apple tv You said that we're or... truly cross platform <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the marketing sense of truly is, is that, that something you've experienced is that is that something you've been able to take advantage of do you or do you have you mostly worked in the ios
1: base i'm a little afraid of it to be honest cuz i have some friends that are in you know, embracing the uh, Swift UI for the Mac and some things are easy. I would say the Mac is much farther behind iOS in terms of like viability for launching a, like a true first class product. But but that said, you know, well, A, AppKit isn't going away. So if you need like kind of a robust, like uh, tried and true, Uh, you know, method of developing Mac apps, you can still do that. I would probably try to suffer through Swift UI and trying to make it work. And if things didn't work exactly how I wanted, I would be stuck with filing bugs or just dealing with it. And so I guess it just depends on what your priorities are. It, It is pretty amazing that this puzzle app that I'm writing right now, well, it already works on the iPad, which wasn't very surprising, but with minimal effort, I could get it to work on the Mac. So... That's pretty nice. And I haven't given Mac a single thought, actually, until you said that. But, yeah, it'd probably work. Mm-hmm. And I'd probably have to, like, fix things here or there. But I guess the question is, does it need to be on the Mac? And is there is there a market for it on the Mac? And maybe there is. What's the way that
0: like, you... Go Go
3: go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. How do you write responsive views or do you write a different view for each platform or do you, can you write things that scale to the screen size? Like, Yeah. More,
1: more likely you'd write things that are just adaptable in general. Like y- you can say like, Oh, this, this particular modifier only applies to iPad or only applies to this platform or whatever, or only applies when in dark mode or whatever. So, So you can make things reactive to the environment in many different ways. In general, it's like you're going to have some branching logic somewhere and it's probably Mm -hmm. better that that's not like in the first line of code. If I'm on the (laughs) Mac, I'm going to run this app, whole view tree and experience. And if I'm on iOS, I'm going to do this. You know, hopefully there's a little bit more reuse you could, you could have between your views because Mm -hmm. you know, the, the views that you get, that you create like buttons and lists and images and stuff like that. Those are trying to create a conceptual model for you to write and then on the platform, it renders what is appropriate for that platform. So for Apple TV, you would get a list that responds to the TV remote and has focus rings, which doesn't really exist on iOS or the Mac mm-hmm. and and things like that. So like I, the idea is that you write it one time and it does the right thing on every platform. But like I said before, I'm really picky. So if it didn't work exactly how I wanted, I would be probably pretty frustrated and I might go back to saying... I have a TV experience and I have a Mac experience and I have an iOS experience and maybe they're not all the same thing. Yeah,
2: you know, it's reminding okay. me of, I learned Tailwind CSS in the last year. I, I hate CSS, but like you look at, you look at Tailwind CSS on the page and it's just like, what, but then you take some time to learn it and it, it changed everything for me. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting stuff.
0: So well, I was just gonna say that, you know, I've my my little toy SwiftUI UI app that I built, it didn't take too long. Mostly I'm running it on the Mac. So I I did it on the Mac and it didn't take too long before I hit something where it's like, oh I want to do this. And then you read the documentation and it says only support on iOS, iOS, or you know, so there's definitely the, some some stumbling blocks there where some some stuff in the platform only works on one one operating system or the other.
2: So I have one last question for Ben. Shoot, you learned guitar when? Well, it was it was like re, I mean when I say relatively recently it's like within the span of time I've known you, right? Like no, no, no. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, I mean I I got my first guitar when I was seven. Oh. And I and I learned. <laughs> he's got the whole world in his hands, and that was about it. Nice. And then yeah. I put it down forever. And then I got a guitar. I got an electric guitar when I was thirteen, and so. You know, it was my goal in life to learn how to play Nirvana and Metallica and Rage Against the Machine and all that stuff. So yeah, so I I played electric guitar for a while, and then I didn't really like my amp or my pedals, and, and I couldn't sound like the people that I liked. So I just played acoustic guitar for like fifteen years or something, and I just never really progressed. And then one day I was like, oh, I actually have a job and I can afford to like buy toys. I'm going to buy an electric guitar and. Yeah, so now I've got multiple electric guitars and amps and uh, ped- a pedal board, and yeah. it's it's a uh, it's a fun hobby.
2: Well, I was remembering the very first. I think it, you said it was the very first app you made was Guitar Tab, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Wow. Yeah, I actually that's what
1: made that. me leave .dot net and change my whole career up. Is I was like, <laughs> yeah. I. I was like, I could tolerate Objective-C if it meant that I can work on a Mac and, you know, make money in the App Store or whatever.
2: Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that because you and I were talking before we started recording about, uh, about Pink Floyd and, and your your Pink Floyd. You recorded two two songs that you've done, which I actually watched while we were getting ready here. And they're really good. Like, they're really good. <laughs> and I was like, geez, if he's only been playing for like the last seven or eight years, I'm jealous. But I guess... Well, I didn't know you when you were thirteen, did I? No, no. I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. very impressive stuff. I don't know. Maybe John can John can let that play us out when we wind, wind up today.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah, if I can get the artist release signed.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thanks. That's very kind of you to say. It's
1: it's. I think it's important to have hobbies that are not software development because if I mean. If that starts to stress you out, then your hobby stresses you out. And that sucks for, you know, for that's just not a good state to be in. And so I've taken up a guitar and baking and cooking. And I think it's good to to have other hobbies as well as programming.
0: All right, so I think we're out of time. So thanks a lot, Ben, for coming on and educating us. Tell us the websites of your training projects. so
1: people know. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you can find the Combine Swift course at combineswift.com. My regular screencasts on iOS development are at nsscreencasts.com. One day I'm going to have to to change the name of that because the NS (laughs) is probably not long for this world. Yeah, and I guess you could find me on Twitter at SubDigital. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for inviting me on.